Hi, and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr Anthea Rhodes, paediatrician here at the RCH, and today I'm joined by my colleague and good friend, Dr Lexi Frydenberg. Hi, Anthea. Today we'll be talking about understanding and managing challenging behaviours in toddlers and preschoolers. We're going to touch on things like fussy eating, toddler tantrums, and how to spot problems and when you might need extra help. It's an episode packed with listener questions, so stay tuned. From the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. So, Lexi, as we continue to face these challenges at the moment of COVID and particularly with families here in Victoria having been in lockdown for what feels like an eternity now, we've found in families that behavioural challenges, and that goes across the board, but perhaps none more challenging than with little kids, toddlers and preschoolers, have become you know, increasingly hard for people to manage. Yeah, I agree, Anth. I think there's a lot of big emotions right now, both from our little kids, but also us as parents. Yeah, we're having tantrums too. Absolutely. (laughs) And it's really hard to parent well or, you know, be a good enough parent when your own reserves are down. So when your cup's empty, and I think a lot of us are finding that right now. So, you know, when we're having a good day, we might be able to put in all these tips and and tactics we're going to talk about. But actually, right now, parents are a bit depleted. Even yesterday, I was just, it was a beautiful day in Melbourne. I was walking down the street and outside the ice cream shop, there was a little toddler having an almighty tantrum, which, you know, happens all the time. And I would say that in a non-COVID time, um, often the parents would be embarrassed or try and get that child away from this the street having a tantrum. But actually, yesterday, this mother just sat there and said, it's going to be okay. This will pass. And hopefully we'll get to unpack a little bit about preschool and toddler behaviour today. Yeah, perhaps we're getting some new skills through, you know, all these challenges that we've had. So joining us today to tackle some of these issues and give us some practical tips around some of the really common challenges that do crop up for parents every day when it comes to toddlers and preschoolers is friend and colleague, Dr. Billy Garvey. So Billy is a developmental and behavioural paediatrician working in the Centre for Community Child Health here at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Billy. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. I think what would be really helpful to kick off today is a bit of a conversation about what's normal, if we can even call anything normal. You know, what's the range of typical behaviour or sorts of things that you would expect to see when it comes to toddlers and preschoolers? So really thinking about those kids that are anywhere between 18 months, two years old and, you know, up to around age four. Yeah, I think it is a nice place to start. And I think that, you know, we're, we're really lucky to work with a lot of children and families. And I think professionals and, you know, everyone that uh, is around kids, family members, parents, grandparents, have a good understanding about developmental progression and a lot of things about kids. So really a good understanding about kids in how their motor development. So they might first roll and then they'll sit up and then they'll crawl and then walk and run. Same with language development. I'll make some sounds and socially smile back at us and you know, then some words and sentences. And our emotional development is the same. It's just much harder to see. So little bubs are born with emotions. They're angry and happy and sad. Um, And as kids get older, and especially through the crucial period that you're talking about, they develop more skills in their emotional abilities. And what they're actually moving towards is independence. But they're really small steps that happen towards independence. And We also know it's really good to think about emotional development as a way that child increase the complexity of their ability to talk to us. So a baby crying is saying, I want something. 
a, a child getting upset in the age bracket you're talking about, maybe an 18-month-old, there is a, a feeling that's underneath that behavior and an emotion. And what we're trying to do is to understand what's going on for that child so we can support them. We don't always have to have the answers, but I think understanding that, and it's different. Just because a child might be really fast or have really good language doesn't mean that they're really bright or ahead in their development. And some of those kids will actually be behind, but we just pitch things too high. So how can we go to where they're at in their emotional ability, support them in that moment, and then really give them some, you know, some lift towards a little bit of gentle independence? But just acknowledging that is, I think, a really important part of it. Okay. And so we've got a question from Sarah, one of our listeners, that really taps into some of the things you're talking about there. We might have a listen now. Hello, my name is Sarah. I've got a question around toddler behaviour. What is normal toddler tantrum behaviour and what are the signs that you need to seek help? Great question. So I think the first aspect of what's normal behaviour, we know toddlers go through um, an emotional developmental phase that's really about them learning about themselves. So that's why a lot of the language is I and it's me and it's, it's nothing personal. It's not that they're not thinking about... You know, mum's had a really hard day, but I really want ice cream or I really don't want to go to bed even though she's tired. Um, it's really, they're very egocentric and that's a really important part of their development. But that's really hard because when you start seeing yourself in the world, you don't have a lot of language yet. You don't have a lot of ability to regulate the feelings that you have. There can be these kind of outbursts of, you know, really intense big emotions that toddlers will have. Um, and so that's a really uh, important part of kind of what's normal. So expecting that that's going to happen a lot. And it's a bit the same way as we were talking about earlier, you know, children learning to walk often get better at it by falling down. What you're talking about there, I think, in terms of um, the way we put that into into practice is regulation. So, you know, how we actually can contain our emotions, our big emotions, and that that for young children is something that they have to develop and learn. And, you know, they don't, the minute they're talking and communicating, they're not also able to regulate in the way that we might hope they can or expect them to sometimes. Definitely. And I think, you know, in the same way when a child who's learning to walk falls down, we lift them up and support them and tell them they're okay and that they can take more steps. We've got to do the same emotionally to understand that kids are falling down a bit and they get better at it by us supporting them and lifting them up and saying it's normal to fall down, it's normal to struggle. Absolutely. So really validating it, listening to them and showing the child that they're being heard because often the tantrums are a way of them communicating to us. Yeah, I agree, Lexi, like it is. If we look at them as that and not as, you know... Difficult children, Yeah, this is hard, you're making things really difficult, which they often are as well because parents have so many things on their plate. The toddler's in the phase where they're thinking, I'm the only person that exists in the world. I don't think about dinner or the other kids. Absolutely, but they're not intentionally being naughty or difficult. It's just the circumstances are really complicated. So for parents listening, you know, they might be thinking about their child and, and they may be expecting, okay, this might happen when they're 18 months, two or three. When can they expect to see that a child typically would have developed the skills to mean that they can move past that and that the tantrum behaviour that we're talking about being, you know, a normal type of thing developmentally um, will in fact... uh, Dissipate and slow down. Yeah, dissipate, happen less. 
So it's a really good question. Every child is different and there's so many things that influence that. We, we might have a chance to talk about temperament. We might have a chance to talk about the environment and different parenting styles. But we do see kids, you know, will often start to show us signs um, when they enter preschool that they have a bit more complexity in their understanding about relationships, which is a really cool thing because relationships are what drives everything for us. From the moment a bub is born, to us doing this podcast, to everything that's really important to us. A lot of it is about relationships. What little kids who enter preschool will start showing signs of is thinking about other people. There's a beautiful story that a parent told me the other day about uh, his three-year-old daughter. You know, a a child was upset and the three-year-old, his daughter, went over and sat down next to that other girl and said, it's going to be okay. Now, the other girl just jumped up and ran off. Yeah. (laughs) But that's an appropriate thing for the other girl as well. But it's this beautiful example of empathy, which we start seeing come in at preschool age kids. And we also see things like jealousy and guilt. Yes. And those are really big emotions for, you know, someone who's three, four years of age to be dealing with. They're hard for us to be dealing with. Yes. So Mm -hmm. we need to remember that when you're three that's going to be much, much harder because you just don't have as many skills to deal with it. But I think it is important that these children are able to express these emotions and see what response they get from other children and from adults, and that's how we learn. So I suppose one of the questions that what Sarah asked us was when is it abnormal and when should I seek help about my child's behaviour? Yeah, so I think instead of like abnormal versus normal, thinking about it more as every child has different strengths and weaknesses. And what I care about is like how much are those weaknesses impacting on that child's quality of life and their functioning. For these kids, it's often things like going to kinder, are they able to go, are they building relationships, how's their self-esteem going? What's home life like? Is it really stressful for parents? Uh, Is there joy in the house? Are there things they're getting to do that celebrate their kids and the relationships they have with them? And also the parents and kids decide, you know, when it's too much. There's Mm. no kind of line in the sand that we draw that says, you know, when a child's having six tantrums a day, that's when you should get help. It might be much less than that, but that parent is really struggling and that's when we would really like to come in and support them. One of the things that I sometimes think about as well is the the setting of the behaviour. So um, I know even as adults, we talked about tantrums, you know, we were joking as we let in, but in (laughs) fact, we do all still have tantrums. We tend to save that behaviour for a space where we feel really safe. And often, you know, as adults, that's maybe with your partner, um, you know, or someone that's in your immediate family environment. And outside of that setting, we tend not to have our tantrums. And so for young children, as you say, Billy, as they start to become aware of relationships and they're interacting with their peers, there comes a time when they realise as well that, you know, actually this behaviour I keep for, you know, home or a different space, um, and they may not even think about it in that way, but it just sort of happens. Uh, And then when I'm in settings where I'm socialising or I'm engaging with other kids, you know, my behaviour is more contained. And sometimes we find that children have challenges with that. And those tantrum behaviours or their difficulty containing big emotions keeps on going beyond that of their peers. And then it really starts to affect their social relationships. And that might be another flag that, you know, this is getting to a place where it's affecting function. Absolutely. And sorry, I was just reflecting that when my um, yo- my youngest was at preschool, all the time, our, you know, the teachers would say to us, oh, he's such an angel. He's so well behaved at school. He interacts. And the minute he got home, it was like a volcano had exploded. And we had this for years. We would like, 
I think we're talking about two different children. And I can say this now because he's, you know, really developed and emotionally evolved and now can regulate his emotions a lot better. But what was really interesting and I often talk about with families is that a child learns to contain their emotions and not show those big temper tantrums and big emotions in a social or a school setting potentially but you'll often get the worst at home. So the minute you get home, early afternoon, evening when you're trying to cook dinner, trying to bath the kids, trying to do it all as a parent, that's usually when the child will feel safe and explode. And that's quite normal too. Absolutely. One of the things I just want to pick up on that you mentioned, Billy, was temperament. Yeah, so I think a good way of thinking about temperament is kind of how sensitive we all are. So we all have different temperaments. But like you're talking about, Lexi, it's often in the places where we feel like we have emotional security that we let our emotions come out. And parents, like you with your son, are very good at creating spaces where kids feel safe. And that's a really important part of emotional security. That ties into temperament because the amount of emotional security that each individual child needs to be provided with is different. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's a big chunk of kids in our community that are sensitive. They have sensitive temperaments. They might struggle with routines. They might struggle with transitions. They might struggle with, you know, little things that we look around and go... That, why was that such a big deal? Mm. But they've had this big reaction to it. Putting their shoes on on the way to school. Yes, putting the their shoes on. And you actually, you've already nailed a couple of points that are really difficult for families. Bedtime, meal times, you know, getting ready for school. And often the hard thing is that those kids who are sensitive are very good at picking up off everyone else around them how they're managing that situation. And none of us can be perfect parents. The great thing about those kids is that they often go on to thrive because they're so sensitive to their environment. They get so much out of positive relationships. Often in one family, there's incredible differences between different children and that's the way they are. And it's about how do we as a parent just change our responses depending on the child and their temperament. And recognising our own temperament in that mix as well. We've got a great question that relates to this. Hi there, my name is Tenille and my question is how do you deal with children who have perfectionist tendencies? I have a little three and a half year old boy and um, yeah, just looking for some strategies on how to help him get through that. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question Um, and I think speaks to some of the things we've already talked to, which is kind of the sensitivity emotionally and the expectation that child might be placing on themselves. Um, This is a, a parent who's really responding really well to their child's needs. Like we spoke about before, there is a difference in emotional ability and language ability. And some of these kids who might seem like they're perfectionists have very high language abilities. So they're very good at talking about things and explaining things. And they're often really thriving, you know, at kinder and head in so many things, but they really struggle emotionally and just really role modeling and supporting that child where they're at and saying, you you are going to get even better at this and I'm going to help you. And all of us as a family are going to work together on this. I think it's a great approach for it. And do you think sometimes permission to sort of fail and not get things right? Definitely. I think that's a really important thing. And I think a lot of parents ask, you know, what what's the perfect thing that I can say when my child's struggling? And I think that's a huge weight for parents to have on their shoulders. I think the uh, different way of looking at that is acknowledging to the kids that we also struggle with these type of things. I'm also trying to figure out how to get better at it. 
this is what I've learned in that process. And I wonder if, you know, you have similar ideas or we can work together so that you get even better at bedtime. How can we do this together? Or you get even better at sharing with other kids. So it's not about perfect answers. It's about kind of being emotionally receptive and supportive. And then some role modeling for kids, I think, is a really great way. This actually transitions quite well into talking about how, as parents, we can manage these big emotions, these tantrums. And we've got a great question from Kathleen. I really love this podcast. I find it really helpful. I have a one-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And our three-year-old found that transition from going to childcare regularly to not going to childcare very challenging. We had a lot of tantrums that were very challenging to calm down. Some of them were really public which I find challenging just myself. And then that behaviour settled down. But now that we're heading towards childcare reopening for us, as my partner and I are fully vaccinated, um, we've started talking to him about returning to childcare and he just adamantly doesn't want to go. And the tantrums have returned. So my question really is um, any advice around dealing with big toddler emotions or big big preschool emotions and returning to childcare after having been in lockdown for such a long time. Great question. I guess there's kind of two parts to it is responding to big kind of toddler emotions is the first one. And I think what we've spoken about is kind of recognising their normal is a really important part of the first step. I think then also recognising that when little ones that age are really struggling emotionally, they're kind of completely overwhelmed by it. So often what's really important in that moment is showing them that they're safe, that you're there for them, um, and making sure everyone else is obviously safe around them. But really being physically present and emotionally present with the child in that moment is really important. Understanding that it's, it's not the best opportunity for that child to skill up in dealing with their emotions when they're completely overwhelmed. That goes for toddlers, but it goes for all of us, really. The best time for me to learn how to deal with my emotions better is not when I'm completely overwhelmed by them. Yeah, I think that's a really important message, Billy. And part of that as well, keeping out of the jungle yourself when your child's losing it, trying to keep your own head. Do you have any tips for parents about that? Yeah, I mean, the most important tip is go easy on yourself. This is really hard. We have our own temperament. Our kids have our temperament. When things are really lost is not the time for any of us as parents or the kids that we look after and care for, our own kids, to get better at those things. It's actually in the lower level intensity stuff about recognizing it early and giving kids an opportunity to have even better ways to deal with their feelings and saying that it's normal. It's great that you're feeling like that and you're good at showing me and I'm going to really help you have really good ways to support those emotions that you're feeling. But having that conversation not at the heat of the moment, let it settle down when you're in bed, reading a book, you might talk about it at another time. I think one of the points you mentioned is also um, just thinking about that child and what's going on for them um, and having realistic expectations about when they may have a tantrum. So we know that if we're hungry, um, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, we're overtired, a child and an adult are much more likely to have these big emotions. So just being able to predict those times can be really helpful. Yeah, I think so too. And also as a family, just picking a couple of things that you're working on. There's these amazing parents out there that are like, cool, we're going to make it so that 
we're happy all the time. Yeah. All the kids <laughs> listen to me when I say something. We all make dinner together. We do yoga in the morning. Here's we a go magic to school wand. perfectly. Yes. Let's meditate before bed. It's just so much pressure. It's and I a think lot of picking a couple of things, and you can either pick the thing that's like really important, or you can pick the thing that you're like, we just want to get some runs on the board. Let's do something fun once a week, you know, and that's going to be our priority. We have taco night with movies on every Tuesday or whatever it is. And then what you're showing kids is how important the relationship that you have with them are and their role in the family and saying it's not actually about a hard set of rules. It's about us working together so that we have a happier life. It's, it's easier. It's more fun and picking a couple of things. And it's a perfect example of kind of. I think, you know, a lot of well-intended parents just take on too many things that they're trying to improve on. In the clinic room, I often say to parents, let's write a list together, both parents and sometimes with me. On the left, I want you to write the difficult behaviours that you find challenging. And we're going to circle one or two of those to focus on. But actually, the list on the right is more important. And that's a list of all the good behaviours and all the positive things that, that you can see for your child. And actually, parents often struggle with that part until we sort of help unpack it together. And I think you can spend so much time focusing on the negative and the difficult behaviours and that becomes the story in your house. Whereas trying to really, you know, shift the focus, focus on those positives has a much more long-lasting positive effect for that child and their behaviour. I want to also touch on something alongside that and that's the idea of discipline, if you like, or punishment or sometimes we talk about the consequences being negative in response to an undesired or an unwanted behaviour. We know that parenting's tricky. We've already talked about that a lot. Yeah, I think the difficult thing is we know a lot of families um, are kind of using punishments as a tool to try and improve behaviours. And um, I think the challenge with that is that when we look at it um, in really big studies of scientific literature, not only does it not really work, it also doesn't, um, it can actually increase how much kids are struggling. And I think there's a big conversation around that. But what the thing that's really important about that for me is I really work hard to give families things that they can do that are actually effective. Every parent wants their child to thrive. It just shows us that we need to get better at giving them tools that are actually helpful. And that's where a lot of positive reinforcement comes in. So it's really about, and the way I think about it is you don't have to be three to, to you know, realize that someone telling me what they want me to do and celebrating it when I do it is much easier than someone putting something in my mind and talking about something I shouldn't be doing. And then I have to inhibit my thoughts and my behavior about it. And separate from Kathleen's question, we know that when we talk about negative consequences, that sometimes means physical discipline or physical punishment. So, yeah, I think on physical punishment, we do see a lot of families in clinic that, you know, are really open and honest and trusting with us about their experience. And they will say that that is something that they do. And we know a lot of the families will also tell us it's because they're really stressed in that moment and they feel really remorseful afterwards. I think it's important to recognize that, that that's the normal experience of a big group of families in our community. And we need to come around them and realize that that's a sign that a parent's really stressed. So how can we then support that parent to start introducing some things that are more helpful, they're more enjoyable for the parent, they're not as stressful and cause the guilt and remorse afterwards, but they're also more likely to actually help that child get even better at managing their own emotions and achieve what the parent and family are trying 
to help that child achieve. One of the phrases I learned is um, to try and catch our children being good. And I think we don't do that enough. We don't throw praise on them. If you, if you fill the space with more of that consciously, then um, what we find is some of the negative stuff just naturally goes away. So we're always going to have situations where we think, oh, I didn't react well to that or, you know, I wish I'd managed that differently. Yep. But at the same time, if you put some focus and energy on the positive reinforcement, mm. on catching kids being good, then often with families that fills up the, the space and the things take a turn for the better. It's really cheesy, but I think we kind of become who we hear that we are and really positive stories around kids is a really powerful thing. I think the challenge for parenting is that life is really busy and difficult and when kids are playing well is often the time where you go, God, they're doing that well. I'm going to now go and do get, something get else. dinner ready, <laughs> you know, do the laundry, do those hundred other things and the children will learn I'm struggling. How do I get mum and dad to come in? You know, yep. and what we're trying to say is try and find a little bit of time in the day to come in when they're doing the things that we want the them to be stuff. doing and show them how great it is. Kids are hardwired for attention. We all are, really. So let's give them the attention for the things we want to see them doing. So moving on, Billy, to the other aspect of our question from Kathleen, which was about transitions, really. So she talked about, you know, how do we manage getting um, young kids back into, in her her household, it's childcare. There'll be lots of listeners out there with similar sorts of experiences. The bit that's important is the child is showing us that they're struggling a little bit with that transition and being really gentle with it is important. And it's not about kind of saying, well, no, that's just an expectation we won't have anymore. You don't need to go to kinder anymore. But how can we do that in a gentle way that really supports that child? And maybe it's not even kinder. Maybe it's getting them around other kids kids they know, you know, kids they've met before and spent time with and had an enjoyable experiences for, for just small times of really scaffolded play. What a lot of kids are looking for, especially with how hard things have been the last two years, is predictability. Like, how do I know what's going to happen? Like, and we, for so long now, a lot of us haven't known what's going to happen. And little kids going into transitions, that's obviously, honestly, a big part of it is like, what will happen if I go to kinder? What will happen if that, you know, if I step into that unknown and they're worried about it and supporting them and scaffolding them to the level they need is really important. And then you gently reduce that. And that moves towards what we started talking about, which is more and more independence. And how do you think then parents who are also experiencing a lot of unknown, all of us, can best do that with their kids? You know, what sort of things might they say? How can they, what does it look like in practice? Yeah, I think saying things like, you know, I'm not sure whether there's so many things I'm not sure about, but these are the things I'm sure about. I'm sure that, you know, I'm always going to be here anytime you need me to be. I can't promise that it won't be hard days and I can't promise that, you know, everything will go well every day at kinder. But anytime it doesn't go well, I'm here for you and lots of people are here for you. And we want to keep getting better at how we do that. And I think the role modeling aspect as well, sometimes I worry about how work's going to go or how I'm going to go when I play that sport or something else that I'm invested in. And that makes me nervous. And the way that I handle it is I do this and this and this. You know, I go for a run first or I talk to people about it. You're going to have your own unique ways of learning that. But I'm going to help you get better and better at this because I think it's something that you're really good at. Yeah. I think that's really important. If you're open as, as a parent about your own insecurities and your challenges, but show the child ways to get through, it's really helpful. And I think routine is incredibly important. 
even just packing a bag in the morning. You don't have to be going anywhere, but just getting back into the habit of packing a bag for childcare and then maybe walking to the end of the street. So I think just take it really slowly and sort of desensitise our children back yeah, into the real it is. world. It's a re-entry sort of gradual exposure really for everyone as we come out of this. But, um, you know, things we're feeling, our kids are going to be feeling too. And as you've talked about, Billy, they just might show it to us in different ways. Mm. I think we'll move to a different question now, a bit of a change of focus. So comes up all the time. We've had lots of requests through the podcast to tackle this and we're going to hear from Lou. I'm a child health nurse and also a auntie of toddlers and I get this question a lot about toddler refusal of meat and vegetables and what's the best way to get those nutrients into them. What are the best strategies for making mealtime enjoyable and less stressful? Thanks. Fussy eating, Billy. Yeah, it happens too. in so many households every single day. Yeah, I think once again, just thinking about what the experience is like for that child. So there's a lot going on in that moment. So there's often it's a pressure situation. Families have worked so hard to put food on the table. They've had to you know coordinate all these things, get all the kids lined up, get everything organised after a long day themselves. So realising that that is a pressure point in a family's day often is around mealtimes, like we've talked about with sleep and toileting and um, getting ready for school. The other element about that is that, um, you know, there's there's once again a lot of uncertainty in that, especially if it's a food they haven't tried, one that has an intense smell, there's a texture part of it. And a lot of kids, uh, you know, it's completely normal to struggle with some of those new sensory aspects of food. We also know that a child who we're trying to get to do something new, if we unintentionally are putting pressure and anxiety around that, they will often push back against it because they'll go, you want me in that room to go and sit on that toilet? I can see how big a deal this is. It's the last place I'm going. <laughs> I'm turning around. Yeah. Same with the table. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how do we create as much as possible a really calm environment around that? And just give the kids a chance to explore those new foods. I think a lot of people worry they have to have meat and they have to have this many veggies and all those things. But actually trying to make it as possible an enjoyable experience and realizing often the last thing food with happens with food, especially for toddlers, is they put it in their mouth. Yeah, so, they play with it. They throw it. <laughs> messy eating, messy play is good. And I think it's important as parents to remember that um, our child will eat differently every day. And so some days you might have a good day and they seem to be eating all types of food, variety, lots of quantity. The next day, they're not interested at all. And it's really not about the day-to-day nutrients. Mm. If you look at it over a week or a month, in general, most kids will get a little bit of each type of food group in. Yeah. I suppose parents do worry when a child doesn't get all those food groups in, when do you start to to think about that and how do you counsel a parent if they're really worried their child won't eat meat or vegetables? I think trying to find the things that the kids are interested in and implementing, you know, some healthier options into that. I, I often find myself in clinic, you know, wondering what would happen in the world if chicken nuggets didn't exist tomorrow. Yes. Because for some reason, kids, you know, really love chicken nuggets. They uh, do. What, I, look, <laughs> chicken not nuggets actually haven't been around that long. We've only got to go back a couple of generations and there yeah. were no chicken nuggets. What, what uh, were kids eating? I had them or I had fish fingers. Fish fingers, I guess. On a Sunday I guess. night. <laughs> but there was yeah, no I, fish. That's, 
I guess part of the white diet, as we call it in Billy, you, uh, in clinic, Billy, I've seen it a lot as well, where all the foods essentially are white. So there's a strong preference for carbs um, and chicken. Yeah, and I think being the kids being a part of that process before it gets on their plate as well. So, you know, they're picking it out in the supermarket with you. They're part of preparing it. You know, what do you think we might add to it? What do you think will make it more yum? All those elements. And I'm not pretending that you do these things and it'll be perfect, but I think it will gently move kids in the right direction. You know, chicken is a really good example of the sensory element to food, that it's really predictable, it's really plain, it's the same as potato chips and all of these things, whereas a lot of vegetables and meat have a lot going on. And how can we recognise the bits that kids might struggle with and kind of push, put them aside for the moment and go, my child struggles a bit with crunchy food, so I'm going to you know, not give them too much of that at the moment, but they really like stuff that's mashed up or they really like stuff that's mixed in or they like it with tomato sauce or whatever it is and then really generally reintroduce it but not expecting that in one moment a child is all of a sudden not going to be a fussy eater because something that a parent has done right. It's just too much to put on a parent. Absolutely and I think we always tell parents that it often takes 10 to 15 times of giving that particular food for a child to actually then take it in their diet and you might need to try it in different formats, different textures, um, and that's okay. And if it doesn't work, put that one aside, come back to it another time. And I think also what can be helpful, I find, with families is reassuring them that for the, in the vast majority of cases, even if a diet seems really restricted or narrow, it's unlikely to affect the nutrition of that child ultimately in terms of sometimes parents worry they need lots of blood tests or, you know, this is going to be affecting their child's immune system or, you know, that they really need a lot of multivitamins, for example, to make up for things. Obviously, there might be situations where that is a concern, but in the vast majority of cases, you know, even kids with a fussy diet will be getting enough in to grow and get the nutrients they need to be healthy. And I think that's a great sort of point to start thinking about parents looking after themselves, Billy. So we say it a lot and we've talked about it today, you know, look after yourself. It's the put your own oxygen mask on Mm. first sort of concept. Can you tell us about what advice you've got for parents about how they can do that at a a really practical level? Because it all sounds good in theory. It's a bit like, as you said, do yoga and go for a run and, you know, find time for yourself. What might it really look like in in day-to-day life? Yeah, so I think a lot of parents are so selflessly focused on their kids that they think, well, no, no, I'm not important here. I'm trying to make my child's life easier or more enjoyable or I'm trying to make us work better as a family. But I spend a lot of time with parents trying to convince them that they're actually an individual before they're any of those roles. They were an individual before they had a child and there were things that they were passionate about that gave them, built up their reserve, gave them joy in their life. It's unrealistic to say, well, go back to playing tennis twice a week or, you know, go back to that creative drawing class. But I think trying to find just a little tiny bit of time to carve out in your week for you to be you as a parent is important. They're also role modeling how important themselves and their own self-care is to their children, which is a really powerful thing for kids to see. You know, mum or dad identifies that they're stressed. They go for a run. That's something that they do that makes them feel better. And I note that they come back better prepared to support all of us in the family. And I think that's a really important bit of it. But you're right, it's really hard when you've got so many things on. I can remember I used to go one particular night to the supermarket. What a a thrill of all things. But alone, (laughs) on, on my own, in the car. And, you know, I just would turn up the radio and just enjoy the fact that I was just by myself And a little bit of me would just feel like me, not me, the mum. 
Yeah. And I think that that really does help people to kind of have a bit more resilience, top up the tank and come back, hopefully, my husband would hope, in a, in a slightly better mood. <laughs> in terms of always being available for your kids, it does get easier. And I think, you you know, this time shall pass. We've just got to keep remembering, particularly during a toddler tantrum, this too shall pass. We'll get over it. Tomorrow's a new day. And in some situations, obviously, it is really overwhelming. And even with all of those efforts, parents might still be feeling like they're struggling to cope. So, Billy, can you suggest what sort of resources you might, um, you know, point parents in the direction of if, if they are feeling like they need some extra help? The kinder educator can be a great person to speak to. Obviously, the maternal child health nurses, I get to work with a lot of them. They're very skilled um, professionals that have a really great understanding around development and how to support kids. Um, general practitioners are a great and very skilled resource in our community. Um, we also know that there's a lot of people within each local council that are accessible. I think we're trying to improve the pathways so that we all get to work together a bit more. But I don't think that you know every child who's struggling should have to wait to see a paediatrician or a psychologist when there's a lot of helpful information they can get before that. Yeah, so reach out, talk to someone. Perhaps that might even start with people in your circle, friends and family, and then from there to you know professional avenues for help as well. We've covered a lot today, Billy, and you know really I think had some interesting, important and entertaining conversation. Before we finish up, I'd really like to leave parents listening with a bit of a message. You know, If they're going to take away one thing, what would you like it to be? Oh, I think, yeah, just how amazing parents are. This is really hard. It's it's probably, you know, I, I've been doing, I've been working with families for 17 or 18 years and I've been a dad for five months and I kind of think back to all the advice that I've been giving over all that time <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I have to constantly remind myself that sometimes the swim coach doesn't spend a lot of time in the pool. But I think that, you know, this is really difficult. It's really rewarding, but it's really difficult and we're constantly trying to get better at it. But I haven't met a family that is perfect yet but I've met amazing families that are trying their hardest and that's actually what's important, I think. Thanks so much for joining us, Billy. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Billy. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, please share it with a friend and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional. If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.